Matthew 28, 16 through 20. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Uh, we are in a DNA series of our church, the building blocks, seven uh, pieces of vision that we have uh, for King's Cross Church, God's church in Orange County. And ultimately, these seven vision statements are pulled directly from Scripture. They're not things that we've made up on our own because that would make them worthless. Uh, these are from the Lord. So we spoke first on truth, then on gospel. And last week, we talked about community. This week, we are going to be talking about mission, the mission of the church. And the vision on our website reads like this. It'll be up on the screen. We are made for a mission. God empowers and equips every member for service in the church and mission in the world. We use our gifts to strengthen the body by worshiping together, working together, and walking with Jesus together. We are then sent into the world to love, serve, and bless our neighbors. As Michaela read, we're going to spend most of our time on the Great Commission, which is Matthew 28, uh, 18 through 20. Rock and roll bands are notorious for uh, blowing up in the midst of their career highs. And it's no surprise, creative musicians get together, they make a great record, and they find themselves uh, on world-famous tours with with groupies, you know, wanting to get a piece of them all over the place. It's only a matter of time that these musicians might start having self-interest and self-empowerment, and eventually they end up breaking up. And more often than not, more often than not, I know there are a few exceptions, but more often than not, the musicians in these bands do not go on to make better music. I'm thinking of Led Zeppelin, The Beatles, Oasis, Pink Floyd, Blondie, The Cla Clash, The Smiths, Queen, and yes, even Spice Girls for my wife that loves the Spice Girls, even though they're not a rock and roll band anyway. On the other hand, there are bands out there that stand the test of time. They push through and they continue to make great records. Uh, for a few, name a few, U2, The Rolling Stones, The Strokes, Radiohead, and of course Thrice. These bands, uh, I've, heard them, I've heard them ask, like, what is it about you that stands the test of time? Specifically, I remember when Bono was asked this about you too, and he said, actually, they were in the middle of breaking up just before releasing Octune Baby, which is one of their best records. If you disagree, you're wrong. Just before releasing you two, they're about to break up, and the band realized something. The band realized that the individuals were not more important than you two. You too, and the music that they were creating was more important than the individual identities, the individual desires of the individuals in the band. Sociologists would call this finding a shared consciousness. They found a mission that was bigger than self-ambition. The shared consciousness of the church the mission of the church, the thing that transcends us as individuals and even King's Cross as a church in and of itself, the shared consciousness of the church is what we read. It is the great commission. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, 
baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. And behold, I am with you always until the end of the age. In other words, you Christians were saved into a mission, into God's mission. This is important for us to hear. I think American culture has tend to lean into autonomous individuality. We talked about this a little bit when we went over community. Autonomous individuality is the idea that the mission must serve me, that my joy, my peace, and my comfort is the most important thing. And there's some of that that is valuable and true. We should care highly of the individual because we are created in God's image. But as Charles Taylor pointed out, when we secularize, when we remove ourselves from seeing ourselves as a part of a bigger story, when we, see, when we stop seeing ourselves as something, being a part of something bigger than ourselves, we will lose joy. We will lose joy. We will lose purpose and value. Like I said before, instead of serving a mission, the question becomes, how can the mission serve me? This is a westernized American identity issue. Sociology, psychology, philosophy, and theology, though, are all pointing to the reality that we are made to be a part of something beyond ourselves. We need, it is important for our joy to find something worth living for beyond our own comfort. I remember going to this D.A.R.E. graduation and they marched up like all the top students to talk about why they weren't going to do drugs. And they had some pretty good reasons. The first one comes up and he's like, uh, I don't want to do drugs because I want to become a professional basketball player. It's a good reason. The next one comes up and says, I don't want to do drugs because I want to be a millionaire one day. That's also a good reason. But here's what I did not hear. I did not hear, I do not want to do drugs because I don't want to dishonor my family because I want to be a functioning member of society. You see, all of the reasons to not do drugs were self-ambitious, which again, isn't necessarily bad, but what happens? What happens when the little basketball player decides that smoking weed with his friends is more fun than playing ball? Or what happens when the little kid wants to make a million bucks, realizes that he can do that selling drugs? Those are exaggerations. But the point is this, is that we need to find value and purpose outside of ourselves. Ephesians 2.10 says this, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Let me put it this way. I get concerned that it seems to me that many people are in a way, almost just waiting to die. Like they're just living their lives and it's an exhausted life. They're running this endless race with no purpose, with no goal in mind, with no vision. And they're running and running and life just gets exhausting. And you get beat up and you get knocked down. And like the reason to get back up is because you're still breathing. Just, just keep running. Just keep going. There's no, there's no mission there. And Paul talks about, the Apostle Paul talks about running the race. But when he talks about running the race, he's got, he's got an end in mind. He's got a goal. Here's what he says, 2 Timothy 4, 6 to 8. And remember, he's saying this to Timothy, who is his mentee. 
The time has come for my departure. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Now there is in store for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award me on that day. Like I said, so many of us are just like running through life and just exhausted and tired. But Paul, Paul is running and he has a mission. He has a vision for his life. He knows where he's going. He has a final destination. And when he gets to the end of his life, he's like, I'm good. I lived life. Like I did something with that time. And I just, I I don't know about you guys, but man, like I so badly just want on my deathbed to be able to look at my kids to be able to look at my grandkids and be like, I'm good. I, I ran the race. I finished strong. I did well. I did it for God's glory. Like I'm ready. I'm ready to go home and receive my prize. I'm ready for the Lord. Does that resonate with you guys? Is that something that like, you think, man, I, just, I want that. The good news is Jesus, God, gives us a mission. He gives us something to live for, something to aim and to strive towards. We can say that we are running a good race because God has said, go and make disciples. Go and make disciples. So what is a disciple? A disciple simply is a follower of Jesus. It's not just someone who, who claims Jesus to be Lord. It's someone who has dedicated their lives to growing in Christ-likeness, to growing to be more like Jesus. This is important because disciple-making is not just data transfer. Like right now, I am speaking in a didactic way. And this is important. God says that we are to open his word and preach and teach in this sort of way. But I am not currently in this present mo- moment making disciples. Making disciples happens with shared experiences. Making disciples happens when you invite people into your life for God's glory so that they can see you follow Christ and then have the desire to follow him as well. Making disciples happens at the dinner table. It happens at coffee shops. It happens on long road trips up mountains. This is what it looks like to make disciples It's not through books or podcasts, it's sermons. It's when you and I model the life of Jesus so that people can see that and go, man, what's there? I want that. I want that. Disciple making also is not individualistic. This is important. This call to make disciples, it's actually not on our lives as individuals. It's on our lives as a community. It's something that we do together, not in isolated ways. Michael Gohan said it like this, the Great Commission is not a task assigned to isolated individuals. It is an identity given to a community. Disciple-making is an act of corporate worship. I love this story. It's one of my favorite stories. We've had this happen a few times, uh, but I'm thinking of of Palmer right now because I just had coffee with him this week. And I I love the way the Lord used you, our church, in that story, right? Like if you guys, if you guys don't know who he is, Chris was introduced to him. And when we first met him, he was making fun of Christians. He laughed at the fact that we were at a Bible, at a uh, coffee shop with Bibles in our hands. And his entire life, he just, he grew up thinking it was stupid and weird. And uh, after having several conversations with him, he decided to read some books with us. He decided to attend church with us. 
Many of you, it wasn't just a Chris discipling, it wasn't an Oscar discipling. Many of you spent time with Palmer. And, uh, and I love his story. He's there on New Year's Eve two years ago at Chris and Alyssa's house. He goes home and he's thinking, man, there's something, there's something about those relationships. There's something about them that they are not in it for their own comfort. They're in it for something else, and I want what they have. And on his way home from a New Year's Eve party, he gives his life to Jesus. That is disciple-making. That is us inviting somebody into a community for God's glory and their good. There's two types of camps out there that think about disciple-making, and, and I think in some ways they miss the mark, and I think Jesus says something a little bit differently. There's, let's call it the fundamentalist camp, where they think heavily on redemption. They think disciple-making is me uh, transferring information, gospel information to somebody else, and then letting them go on their own. Like if they agree or they disagree, and that's it. They see the world as saved and unsaved, and they move on accordingly. But on the other hand, you've got maybe more of, of what we would call a liberal perspective, which cares deeply about reconciliation. They care deeply about justice and mercy. They care deeply about doing things for the poor, for the sick and the hungry. But they think little of the fact that Jesus says that his kingdom has come and the way is through Jesus. On the other hand, Jesus taught something entirely different. He, he taught redemption and reconciliation. He taught that he has come to redeem all things to himself. And that starts, the paramount moment to that is when people see Jesus as their Lord and Savior. Some, some might say that it is wrong to share your faith. Right? We've probably heard that before. Like, you can't impose your beliefs on other people. And I mean, that's one, that's intellectually incorrect. And two, that's emotionally incorrect. The statement alone, like you can't impose your beliefs on other people. That is in itself imposing their belief on us. Does that make sense? Like at the end of the day, there are two people in this world. There are people who claim absolute truth and there are people who do not realize they're claiming absolute truth. Every single one of us is, is acting, and this is the other point, is that it's, it's wrong emotionally because this is the way we were created. We were created to express joy and to tell other people. When you find a great new movie or show on Netflix, you watch it, you love it, and what do you do next? You invite someone to watch it with you. You tell somebody, dude, have you seen this? You've got to watch this, right? That's the way our hearts work. We have found something worthy and valuable to say something about it. And, and you know, one of the most humanistic organizations out there, TED Talks, like they admit to doing the same thing. Their slogan, their slogan is ideas worth sharing. We have news worth sharing, right? Like it would be morally wrong of you to find the cure for cancer and not tell anybody to just hoard that for yourselves. No, you would scream it from the mountaintops. We have found the cure for what is wrong with our souls. We have found redemption and reconciliation. We have found grace and mercy. And even, even beyond that, I've been thinking, I, I didn't prepare to say this, but I can't help it. Um, someone, someone mentioned to me this week, like, as you're preparing for sermons, preach the gospel to yourself. And... Uh, I started thinking about that. As, as I talk about the fact that the gospel is the cure, that is true. It is a cure for our souls. But in another way, it's, it's different too. Another way, the gospel is, is very personal. 
don't know about you guys, but when I think about the gospel, I tend to be a little bit cerebral about it. Like I think this substitutionary atonement, this legal transaction, but at the core of the gospel, at the core of the gospel, we cannot miss the fact that we have a father who has given up his son for his enemies. And I was, you know, my kids lately, they love to ask me to lay in bed with them. And so we just lay there and we'll just talk. And because, I mean, this happens with my daughters too, but because I have one son and God's son, Jesus, you get it. I'm laying in bed with Levi and we're like, let's just talk about stuff. And so he's asking me questions about science and he's asking me questions about Jesus and we're holding hands and we're cuddling and I love it. It is beautiful. It is one of those moments where you're like, I'm absorbing every bit of this and I do not want this to end. And it was in that moment that I started to think to myself, man, This is similar to that relationship between God the Father and Jesus his Son. Like they're there in perfect unity and community together, enjoying each other in need of nothing. And the Father looks at him and goes, I need you to go and die for my enemies. And Jesus the Son says, okay. Like, I I love you guys, but there is... Real, like real talk, there's nobody in this world that I would ever give my son's life for. And that is what Jesus has done. God has done for us. He gave us his son so that we can be made right with him. That is the sacrifice. And that is the news, the news that God is asking us to make our life all about to go and make disciples, to share this story, this good news, this great sacrifice, this love that you have through Jesus. I want to land it a little bit. I want to land the plane in the sense that I want us to be able to take action. And so I'm going to say it like this. There are three ways in which we can take action. The first way is that we can, I want to encourage you guys right now to think of three people in your life Three people that you, you maybe are like, man, I would just love for them to know the Lord well. Go ahead, think of those names. The second thing I want to encourage you guys to do is to begin praying for those individuals. Because ultimately, the work of reconciliation is through the power of the Holy Spirit, and the best way that we can interact with the Holy Spirit is through prayer. So commit yourself to praying for those individuals. And the third thing I want to encourage you to do is, is talk to them. Invite them to church. Here's the weird thing is like when we think about sharing the gospel, when we think about talking about this good news of reconciliation, I think sometimes we can muddle up and make it very confusing, but it can be so easy. Like you don't have to read Van Til's presuppositional apologetics before having a conversation with somebody. And if you don't know what that means, it's cool. You don't need to know. I love the story of the lady at the well. She interacts with Jesus, and that same day, she doesn't go off to seminary for four years to learn about how to talk about Jesus. She doesn't do like a cultural analysis. She doesn't pick up Charles Taylor's tome. She leaves the well, and she goes right in the town, and she had a two-point argument. Here's what Jesus has done for me, and come and see. Come and see. And that's as easy as it can be. So I want to encourage you to think of those three people. And let's just, maybe, maybe this is more or less for people who call King's Cross their family. Like if you're a guest this morning, it's kind of weird because maybe you're looking for a church. 
uh, and we hope one day you'd call this your church. But for my King's Cross family, let's just start with you. I, I want to encourage you guys to share those three names with somebody after church. And, and maybe we can, not like in a legalistic, hold each other accountable kind of way, but just in a way of encouragement. And I'll tell you, I'll go first. My three people that I've been thinking about all week as I'm preparing the sermon. First is a guy that I used to work with. Uh, second is I started going to this new coffee shop. The coffee's not that good, but the barista's cool. So, uh, so I want to invite him. We started talking about music, and I think it'd be cool to see him here. And then the third is this guy that I play basketball with uh, in my community. Um, so let's talk about that after church. Let's move on. The end, of the, the end of this verse ends with a promise, the power of God's promise. The power of his promise is this. I am with you always. I am with you always. Let that be a comfort to you. God who creates all things by simply speaking, I am with you always. God who sustains all things, I am with you always. God who always has and always will be, I am with you always. The creator of the cosmos, I am with you always. The one whom all of earth bends to his will is saying to you now, I am with you always. That is good news. That is comforting. That is empowering information. We should also see this. We should see that this story, the story of making disciples is God's story, and he's been doing it for a very long time, and we get to participate in the grand narrative of redemptive history. Here's what's interesting about the book of Matthew. Matthew uses what I like to call the Jewish sandwich. Jewish sandwich is where he makes a point, and then he tells a whole bunch of stories, and then he makes that same point again. And he kind of does that to say, hey, these two bookends, this is what's most important. And Matthew, the entire book ends with a bookend. So we just read the Great Commission. And if you flip over to Matthew chapter 1, verse 1, it says this. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And you're like, what does the son of Abraham have anything to do with the Great Commission? I'm glad you asked. If we flip back over to Genesis 12, this is where the Great Commission actually begins. Here in Genesis 12, what we have is a nomad. And at this time in Genesis 12, his name is Abram. And he, he is a nobody. Like this is not a king or a pharaoh. He does not have a lot of money. He is not powerful or rich. He is a desert nomad in the middle of nowhere. Nobody cares about him. And God, out of his great kindness, reaches out to Abram, who will later be called Abraham. And he gives him a covenant the Abrahamic covenant, and he commissions him. And listen to what he says and listen to the familiarity of these words. Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a, a blessing. Abraham is commissioned to go. God has chosen this nobody. And he's going, he, he tells him that I am going to make your family outnumber the stars in the sky. He chooses Abraham to go and Abraham goes. And after a very long time where Abraham and his family sin and they get into the weird situations and there's this weird story about a snake on a pole, but at the end of it all, 
God delivers on his covenant. He delivers on his promise. Abraham's family ends up in the promised land in Jerusalem. And what, what Matthew chapter one, verse one says is, what Matthew is telling us is like, look, this is the continuation of that Abrahamic covenant. You wanna know what happened to Abraham? You wanna know what happened to God in this covenant? He says, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. He's saying, Jesus is my continuation of that. Jesus is the fulfillment of that Abrahamic covenant. And then the book ends and he goes from Jesus to his church, to us. And he gives us a new command, a new commission. And he says something similar that he said to Abraham. He says, go and make disciples. Go and make disciples. You see in the end, all this disciple making, it's, it's God's work. It's God's work. And he is kind enough to allow us to go to work with him. I love that. It's like, you know, it gives me the picture of like someone, a dad headed off to work. He's a construction worker and, and the kids are like, hey, I want to go to work with you. And so he gives them a hammer and nails and he goes, in, he goes into the construction field and he starts working. Like, does the son actually help build the building? Does the building depend on the little nine-year-old kid that's swinging a hammer? By no means. The building is going to be built without his help. But the joy that the boy gets from going to work with his papa, to doing work that his dad does, that's the joy that we receive when God looks to us and says, go and make disciples. Here is this work that I've been doing since the beginning, and I want you to continue doing it with us. He is using us as instruments in his redeeming hands, and that should bring you so much joy. It should bring you purpose. It should bring your life mission. It should give you a reason to run the race so that at the end of your life, you can look to your, your children and your grandchildren, and you can say, I've ran the race. I'm good. I'm good. And the good news is, we're going to close with this first. The good news is, that God promises where this ends. It ends in this way, Habakkuk 2.12. The earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. We get to take part in that. Thank you for listening to the King's Cross Church Podcast. We'd like to encourage listeners to be part of a local church gathering. If you're ever in the Orange County, California area, we'd love it if you come by and visit on a Sunday morning. For meeting times and locations or any other information about us, please visit kx.church. There's no .com in that, just kx.church. Thanks again for listening.